0: This is The Real Estate Rookie Show, number 12.
1: To anybody out there that feels like they need to ask that question, should I wait or should I pull the trigger right now? If you're not experienced enough to make that determination on your own, the most likely answer is you should probably wait. Right now, like I said earlier, right now is kind of a, an unprecedented time. Things are a lot different than they've ever been. And there's no shame in saying, hey, I don't know what's going to happen.
0: I am Ashley Kerr, and I am here with my co host, Felipe Mejia who has been bombarding me with text messages about his new Tesla he's going to buy. So I'm calling him out right now, and he's got to set a date that he actually buys it because I'm sick of listening to him say he's going to buy it.
2: Okay, no, I the can't get set my date, life together. I just, I, I'm trying to figure out how I can afford a Tesla. I know I can. I just am trying to figure out how it's going to work into my portfolio because it's just way out there. And I'm like, I just want to buy another rental property every time I have the money to buy a down payment on a Tesla. So anyways, that's really hard. Just
0: keeping that money is so much sweeter than spending. God,
2: (laughs) just putting it into a rental property makes it so much easier. But that has nothing to do with today's show. Today we have Jay Scott (laughs) The the man the legend. the legend who a
0: BP legend that's yes. absolutely
2: right. I mean, someone
0: was telling me that he has the most forum posts ever on Bigger Pockets. That is crazy. Man,
2: he must he must really know what he's talking about. Not just that he wrote the book on flipping houses, rehabs, and he just recently, not recently, but he wrote a book.
0: Well, last year, yeah, recession. Yep. Proof investing and just updated it
2: and he talks about that book as well
0: yeah so he he also hosts the business podcast for bigger pockets too with his wife carol and that's great if you guys haven't listened to that yet but jay is kind of gonna break down just economic cycles what's happening right now what how you should invest in a downturn um And I I think he does a very good job of kind of breaking it down for rookies, for beginners. You know, even for me, I still don't have a a great grasp on understanding economics. Definitely not the level he does.
2: Yeah, I mean, he breaks down the economy and the cycles that it goes through, the business cycles it goes through. And if you have real estate, you have a business. I mean, ultimately, that's what he's doing. And he breaks it down on how he's reading it or what he thinks is going to happen, right? He gives us a little snippet into his mind. A good guess. like he calls it. A good tip on HELOCs on what to do with lines of credit and i mean he gives really good tips in this episode
0: and we get a jay scott exclusive too he's never been interviewed on this before so you'll have to find out uh, as we dig into the interview what that thing is that's right
2: <laughs> out of all the podcasts he finally gave one thing on here that he hasn't gave to anyone yeah. else so with that let's bring out jay scott
4: That's rentredi.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP like bigger pockets investor for six months of rent ready for only $1.
2: Jay Scott, man, thanks for being on the show. Super excited to have you here, man. How are you?
1: I am doing well. I'm thrilled to be here. This is the one bigger pockets uh, podcast I haven't been on yet. So I'm really excited. Thanks for having me.
0: I know we have like a celebrity on today (laughs) this is so exciting so what we're going to talk about today at least start off is we want to you know you're a huge economics guy i've learned a ton from you just about with coronavirus and what the economy is doing and a recession so today we want to focus on breaking that down for everyone you know including myself what does you know a rookie investor need to know about the different cycles? So, do you want to start us off with kind of talking about there's three major cycles that you go over, correct?
1: Yeah. So, well, let's start actually a little bit earlier than that because it's, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people over the last, well, especially over the last month or two, but over the last couple of years. And what I realize is there's a whole lot of there are a whole lot of misconceptions about the economy and how it works. And that's not surprising because things have been a little bit weird since 2008. Everybody remembers the 2008, the big recession. And and things have been a little bit different since 2008 than what we typically see in the economy. Uh, so for all of those investors and all of those people that have just kind of started paying attention over the last 10 years or any at any point during the last 10 years, what you might be seeing is a little bit different than what the economy has given us over the last 100, 150 years. So to step back to the very beginning, so basically we have an economy and the economy is essentially just all the transactions that happen in in our society. So every time you buy and sell something, that's the economy. And there are points in our economy where things are going really well. People are making a lot of money. People are spending a lot of money. Businesses are making a lot of money. Wages are going up. Everybody's doing well. And we think of that as kind of an economic boom. And then we have those times where it's just the opposite. So businesses aren't doing well. People aren't making a lot of money. We're seeing layoffs. We're seeing just people spending less money. And we typically refer to that as a downturn or a recession. Um, So throughout the history of this country, we have these economic booms and we have these recessions. And so what a lot of people don't realize is um, if you look back, let's go back 150, 160 years there are very, very clear patterns to how these um, these these booms, these up economic times and these recessions play out. And typically speaking, over the last 160 years, we've had about 33 different cycles or 33 cycles where the economy has gone from down to up, back to down. So a full cycle. And if you look, it's actually been fairly consistent. We tend to see that that economic cycle play out about every five to seven years. So if you go back before 2008, most people that were paying attention to the economy realized that every five to seven years, you would kind of have this uptick in the economy, and then you'd have this recession, then uptick and a recession. And I'm probably a little bit older than a lot of the listeners out there. I'm in my mid-40s And so I kind of remember back before 2008, I remember these recessions. I remember things getting good and getting bad and getting good and getting bad. And then 2008 comes around. And 2008, we have this massive downturn, something that we hadn't seen, very few of us had seen in our lifetimes, unless you were around back in the 30s. There was in the 80s, we had a couple big crashes, but it wasn't like 2008. 2008 was kind of the worst of it. So after 2008, we kind of got on this trajectory, things started getting better. And between 2009, 10, 11, and 2020, our economy just kept going up. So for a good eight, nine, 10 years, our economy has just been going up. And like I said, typically speaking, we see a full cycle, an up and a down over five or six or seven years. The fact that we had eight or nine or 10 years of just an up economy since 2008 That was somewhat unprecedented. So anybody that started investing after 2008 probably thinks of the economy as it just goes up. And yeah, we have the 2008 type events where it goes down, but those don't happen all that often. In reality, those do happen pretty often. We do tend to see those recessions. We tend to see them every five, six, seven years. They don't tend to be as bad as 2008, but they are their ups and their downs. So the first thing to understand about the economy is what we've seen, the fact that we saw 10 or 11 years of the economy going up, what we refer to as an expansion in the economy, the fact that we saw 10 or 11 years of that, that is absolutely unprecedented. That was the longest economic expansion in the history of our country. So the fact that obviously the pandemic that we have now, that nobody could have predicted or... Very few people could have mm-hmm. predicted that was what we refer to as a black swan event. So pretty much unpredictable just based on all the other data. The fact that we had that, yes, that's that took us all by surprise. But it shouldn't surprise anybody that after eight or nine or 10 years of an economic expansion, that we were going to see a downturn at some point soon.
0: And I so- have heard a lot of investors Talk about that they think a recession is coming. You know, maybe they're hoarding money. So, what does all this have to do for a real estate investor? For our rookie listeners, what, what does this matter to them? Yeah. So,
1: certainly, because we have economic cycles, these economic cycles typically, we we look at two thousand eight. Two thousand eight was a real estate crash. It was a crash in the lending markets. It was a crash in the real estate markets. So another thing that, another big misconception that I think a lot of investors have is that when we have an economic downturn, when we have a recession, it means we're going to have a crash in real estate prices. I know a lot of people who for the last six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years have been saying to me, I can't wait till the next recession so I can pick up real estate at half price. Yeah,
0: I've heard that a lot too.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, here's the thing. Typically, recessions aren't driven by real estate. Typically, it's not a real estate crash that causes a recession. 2008 was definitely the exception. 2008, again, the lending industry was really bad. Mm-hmm. The mortgage industry was really bad. Real estate was having some some foundational, some fundamental issues that led to the 2008 recession. Historically, real estate doesn't cause the market to crash. Real estate doesn't cause a recession. If you go back to 2001, it was, anybody that was around them remembers the the internet boom where basically internet stocks were through the roof and then 9-11, 9-11 caused the recession in 2001. If you go back into the into the late 80s, early 90s, there was this thing called the savings and loan crisis, which was basically a lending recession, but outside of real estate. You go back to the 70s, it was oil. You go back to the 30s, like the Great Depression, and it was things like tariffs and it was debt. All these things that contribute to recessions, very rarely... Does the same thing cause a recession multiple times? And so the fact that we saw real estate cause the 2008 recession, there are a lot of investors out there, especially new investors, who had this assumption that when the market goes down, when the, when the economy goes down, real estate's going to crash. Now, it might. There are definitely some recessions where real estate takes a big hit. And that makes sense because if you think about it, what causes a recession? People are unemployed, people's wages are dropping, people's hours are getting cut, can't afford to buy stuff. So all those things are certainly going to spill over into the real estate market. If people are losing their jobs, they can't buy houses. If they're getting their hours cut and their wages cut, they're not able to make their mortgage payments. So all of those things are going to affect housing, but not every recession is going to have a huge impact on housing like 2008 did. Some will, some won't. There, There are a whole bunch of of And nobody really understands or agrees with what exactly causes housing to react to a down economy and how bad. So yeah, it's likely that we're heading into a recession now. Obviously, we're in a recession, but it's likely even when the pandemic, when the lockdown ends, we're still going to be in a recession. But don't assume just because 2008 the stock market or the real estate market crashed. That in 2020, that that recession is also going to result in in the real estate market crashing. It might, it might not. Um, but it's important to realize that we don't yet know exactly what the next recession is going to to have, what type of impact that's going to have on real estate. Likewise, the recession after that and the recession after that, it's it's unclear if each of those recessions is going to impact real estate. Not much, a little bit as much as 2008 or maybe even worse. We don't know.
2: Hey, Jay, quick question though. So if, because I know this is what I would be asking. So I know that our listeners are going to wonder, well, if the economy is so measurable, you could say, you can measure, it, you can almost get it down to a couple of years of when it's going to be up and down. Why are so many investors and people, frankly, why are, why are so many people not ready for something like this? If the information's out there, the data's out there, this has been proven over a couple hundred years now based on your book. So why aren't people more prepared for this? I think part of
1: the reason, there, there's a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of people in our industry, in the real estate industry, and investors in general, a lot of them are younger, and they haven't been through multiple cycles. Or even if they've been through multiple cycles, I've been through probably a dozen cycles in my life, if I think about it, maybe not that many. But I've been through a lot, but I didn't, I didn't really start paying attention until 2001. Like for me, that was kind of like I was in my, I was, I was late 20s and early 30s. And I'm like, oh, this economics thing is interesting. Oh, and real estate prices are going down. I was looking to buy a house back in 2001. I just moved to California. And so for me, like paying attention to the real estate market in the industry, it was the first time it ever occurred to me that, oh, I guess this is what a recession is. It had happened to me before. It had happened in the 90s. It happened in the late 80s. It probably had happened in the 70s when I was a kid, but I never paid attention. So until you start paying attention, it's going on around you, but you're not really seeing the big picture. And very few people actually look at the data and say, okay, I can measure 160 years back, 33 recessions. It happens every six or seven years. Again, most people, it's just kind of like, I guess it happens every once in a while, but they don't know if it's every five years or 10 years or 20 years because they don't see that big picture. Second thing is a lot of people have very short-term memories. I remember coming out of 2008, I mean, it was probably 9, 10, 11, and people were were, to some degree psychologically scarred. They were terrified to invest a lot of money. They were terrified to flip houses, even though the market had started to recover. What they saw in 2008 scared them so badly that they were just like, wow, this could get really bad again. I'm scared to invest. And then Here comes 2013, 14, 15, 16. Markets going up. Stock markets at an all-time high. People are making tons of money. Flips are going crazy. All these investors are coming out of nowhere. And suddenly people have forgotten those lessons of 2008. They've forgotten that this can get really bad, or even if not really bad, this could certainly get worse than it is. And so people just kind of, they don't remember. And then the third piece is just this, this term, we use this term, irrational exuberance which is people just kind of feed off everybody else's excitement, everybody else's thoughts and ideas. And when nobody's talking about the market potentially going down or not a lot of people talking about the market potentially going down, everybody starts feeding off that whole excitement of I've got to buy more properties. I've got to start building. I've got to buy multifamily. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And it's just people don't tend to think for themselves. They tend to they tend to listen to those around them. And when a lot of people are really excited, everybody else gets excited and it just kind of snowballs.
0: I can definitely relate to uh, the first one there, uh, being oblivious that it's actually going on because I was in college in 2008. And I mean, I was living my own recession on, you know, Raymond noodles and hot sauce, but I, I had no idea that it was going on around me. And as I got older, I I learned more and more. And and now I like to learn about it and study it. But this is definitely if we are coming up on a recession now, this will definitely be a a learning experience and something I want to, you know, take in as much as I can from it and learn from it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Jay, quick question. So how should somebody prepare for the recession coming and should, it, should they be preparing differently as recessions are coming in their lives? Like for the 2008, should they have prepared a different way? Or do you think there's like an overall way to prepare for something like this?
1: So that, that's a really good question. So let me take that, the, the second part of that question first, <laughs> which was, should we be preparing differently for different recessions? Typically speaking, nobody knows when a recession exactly is going to occur. Like I said, we know they occur about every five to seven years, um, but not always, obviously. We saw that this one lasted 10 years, this this 11 years before this one ended. And if we hadn't had this pandemic, who knows? It could have been another year or two or three. So we do see certain similarities in the cycles and in the recessions. Some of the things that characterize a recession are the total output of the country, like just the total output of the businesses. We refer to that as gross domestic product. It's the total amount of products that the companies are making and people are buying and transactions that are taking place during a recession that drops. So fewer transactions, people aren't buying as much, uh, companies aren't selling as much. Uh, Unemployment tends to go up. That's another thing that we see consistently throughout every recession, Typically, going into a recession, we see interest rates rising. That's kind of common. Uh, didn't happen this time, but, but typically we see interest rates going up leading into a recession. Uh, that's actually one of the things that leads or, or causes a recession. We typically see people's wages falling. So, so businesses are cutting hours and they're, they're cutting uh, salary. So these are certain things that we see in every recession. But we never know exactly when it's going to occur. We can start to see these things, and it could be 6 or 12 or 18 or 24 months before we really see a downturn. So yeah, it it may be possible to predict a recession within a year or two, uh, but it's hard to say next week a recession is going to start. And then secondly, it's impossible, nobody's been able to consistently do it, to say how bad a recession is going to be. Because typically what happens is in a recession, there's one people like to refer to them as bubbles. So there's something that's completely out of whack. And, and when that breaks or when that bubble bursts, we see the downturn. And that's actually, it's, it's pretty true. It's not always true. Sometimes there's a whole bunch of little things that break, but a lot of times there's one big thing that kind of breaks. The question is, is that one big thing breaking going to lead to a whole bunch of other things breaking? So in 2008, yes, it was the the mortgage crisis and, and the lending markets. And when that broke, that kind of broke everything. I mean, that that rippled down into lots of different markets, lots of different industries, and everything sort of broke. You look at 2001. 2001 was a, 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 a good example as well. We had the internet boom, and we had 9-11. And so the bursting of the internet bubble, where all the internet stocks went down, that was a big... That, that was a big economic hit for a lot of people. The stock market took a big hit. And then 9-11 caused a big, uh, a big ripple throughout the airline industry and tourism and a lot of other industries got hit because of 9-11. So you could have thought that in 2001, kind of that, that those two big things happening could have led to a domino effect of a lot of other things happening. It didn't. But in 2008, the mortgage crisis actually did lead to a domino effect. So we never know what that domino effect is going to look like if it's going to happen. And so without knowing if there's going to be that that cascading effect throughout the uh, uh, throughout multiple industries, we don't know if a recession is going to kind of be, it's going to be a three months, we're going to lose some jobs, and it's going to be not fun, and then everything gets back on track, or things are going to get really bad, and it's going to be like 2008 or like the 1930s. We don't know. So Let's start with those two big things. If anybody tells you they know when a recession is going to occur or how bad it's going to be, they're either trying to sell you something or or they're just (laughs) diluting themselves. Now, second question: How do we prepare for that? Number of ways we can prepare for that. So there are certain things that characterize different parts of the economic cycle. So we have that uptick in the cycle, we have that downturn in the cycle, we kind of have the top part of the cycle as well. And through each of these phases of the cycle of the economic cycle. There are different things that are kind of happening around us. So one of the big ones and one of the things that I've been talking about a whole lot the last few weeks has been lending. And since 2008, money has been cheap. There have been hard money lenders out there willing to offer rates at like 9 and 10% these days, uh, which is crazy. Anybody that was investing back in 2008, 9, and 10, they remember hard money rates at like 16% and 5 points. So the fact that that we're seeing hard money at like 9% is just ridiculous. Banks, big banks are lending to people who have credit scores of 560 or 580 or 600. Again, go back to 2008 and you needed a 720 or a 740 credit score to get a loan on a house private money. Everybody and their brother has money in their IRAs now or just money sitting on the side that they're looking to do something with and they're investing in multifamily, they're investing in flips, they're investing in in people's rentals. All this money is out there. And if you didn't go through 2008, you probably don't realize it, but during a downturn, lending gets really tight. People are scared to invest their private money. Banks are scared to invest their money. Hard money lenders can't get money from their bigger investors to invest. So we t- start to see uh, a-, a lot of tightening in the lending markets. And we've started seeing that over the last month or two. And there are a whole lot of people that are coming to me saying, I didn't expect it to be this bad. I, I knew that-, that things would get bad and I was hoping I'd be able to buy deals, but I was still relying on being able to borrow money to buy deals. And now I finally believe you that during a recession, it can be really, really hard to, to find money. So one of the big things that, that I like to tell people and a lot of investors who've lived through multiple recessions like to tell investors is that leading up to a downturn, and again, we don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but, but if, if you can kind of time within a year or two of when it happens, that's the time to start saving your cash, to start cashing in those properties that you think you, you'd rather have the cash in your hands than be holding the property. It's a good time to be working on your credit. It's a good time to be taking out new credit lines like a HELOC, you don't necessarily have to take that money out, but open up a credit line so you have access to that money.
2: What if the bank closes one of those lines of credit while you have it? And that
1: is certainly a risk. And so one of the things I've been telling people uh, since March when we started to see this, this economic shift or this economic catastrophe is that there are banks out there that could start to close these credit lines. And so for some people, I, I've actually suggested, and I, I this is not a blanket suggestion. These are very individual targeted suggestions I made. But for some people who knew that they were going to need access to cash for some specific expenditure, maybe they had to make payments on a refinance, or maybe they had to be able to cash out uh, a hard money loan, For those people that had very specific needs for money over the next six months, what I was recommending to them is pull as much money as you can out of your HELOCs, pull as much money out of your other lines of credit as you can, and just stick that money in the bank. There's less chance of a bank closing down a credit line or decreasing your credit line if you've actually pulled that money out. So it's no fun paying interest on that money if you don't use it, which is why I don't necessarily recommend this strategy to everybody. But for some people who know they're going to have a specific need for their lines of credit in three or four or six months, I'm actually recommending take that money out now, stick it in a bank account, pay the interest for a few months, just throw away that interest so that you know that money is available in six months. Because one of the things that we tend to see during a bad recession is that banks will start to close down credit lines or they will shrink the credit lines. If you have a $100,000 credit line and the most you've ever borrowed on it is 20,000, they might shrink that credit line down to 20,000. So definitely that's always a risk. So, and that's another reason why why it's always good to have as much cash on hand as possible. We've all heard the uh, the phrase "cash is king." Well, during a recession, cash really is king because those who have cash during a downturn are going to be much better positioned to buy properties. We hear all the time, everybody out there. There's there's ten million investors out there waiting for the real estate market to collapse because they all want to go out and buy real estate at half price. Well, how many of them have the cash to do that? How many of them want to do that, but because they don't have the cash and because lending is tightening, they're not going to be able to do that. So so cash really is that that thing that gives you the ability to take advantage of the opportunities.
0: I want to touch back on the the line of credit real quick because a, a couple episodes ago, I think it was episode seven, Felipe and I talked about balloon payments and explained that to everyone where it's when, you know, you have a, a mortgage or a loan on a property and on a certain date, like a, a large balance is due on that. So with that line of credit, that would be a good advice is to, you know, pull that money off your HELOC if you have a line of credit. Or if you have a balloon payment due coming up so you have that money available. And Felipe, did you have that? You have a balloon yeah. payment coming up, correct?
2: I, I did. Um, I had yeah. an arm on a property, uh, an adjustable rate mortgage. I knew it wasn't the best loan to get, but when I got it four years ago, I knew I had uh, five years to like figure it out, but I didn't want to lose the deal. So that's what I did. And, and I literally just got the appraisal and it came back positive. So that's really good. And I'm getting it into a 30-year mortgage and I'm actually even cashing out a bunch of money. So it, it worked out great. Now, it doesn't always work out like that way. And just like Jay said, I'm not, it's, it's individual basis. I don't tell anyone to do the same thing I did. In fact, I don't think it's a great product at all, but I knew that I could get out of it in five years. So I, I was, my goal was to do that. But my question to Jay was, and there is the reason I asked about the line of credit was I had a line of credit and that's what I did. I actually pulled all uh, a large chunk of it out because I'm under contract on a property that I got like under market value, but I need, I want to rehab it. And I was going to use my line of credit to do that. And then, you know, COVID-19 hit and I was scared that the bank might close down my line of credit that I was going to use to rehab that property in six months to a year, refinance it, get all the money back out, pay the line of credit. Everyone knows how that works. But, you know, so I, in my situation, I felt like it was smart to pull it out. But like you said, I would not advise everyone to do that unless you have a plan financially for that money. Is that kind of what you were getting at, Jay?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things, like I said, because lending tightens, one of the things we have to make sure of going into a downturn uh, and whether it's preparing for the downturn before it happens or right at the beginning, um, it's still like you said, you're still able to get a loan right now. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that right now are in a better position than they may be in a month or two or six from now. Now is the right time to be analyzing your portfolio and saying, hey, do I have any loans that are coming due in the next year or two or three. And if you do, now is the time to figure out what is your backup plan when that loan comes due if you can't execute on your plan A. So for a lot of us, that plan A is we're going to refinance. We're going to go to a bank and we're going to either refinance our hard money loan. Maybe our plan A is we're doing a flip and our our plan A is that we're going to sell it. Maybe our plan A is that we're going to find another private lender. Our cousin has money in his IRA, and our plan A is that he's going to lend us the money. Well, now is the time because lending is going to get tighter and it's going to be harder to find money. Now is the time to make sure not only do you have a plan A, but you also have a plan B, C, and D. So, if let's say you have a hard money loan, and let's say that loan comes due in eight months from now, so you've been flipping a property, you had a 12 month loan. And you're four months in, it comes due in eight months. Now is the time to go sit down with that hard money lender and say, hey, what happens if eight months from now the economy gets really bad and I can't repay this loan? Are you going to call it due? Are you going to foreclose on me? Or are you going to extend that loan, maybe make me pay a point or two, maybe raise the interest rate a little bit? But will you give me a backup option to to extend that loan? And if the lender says, yeah, I'll definitely extend the loan as long as you're current on your payments. Great. There's your plan B. But maybe the lender says, no, you need to pay in eight months because I need this money for something else. And now you know that you have eight months to figure out a plan B. And now's the time to start working on it. I know too many people that wait until... 3 weeks before their loan is due, 3 weeks before some balloon payment is due and they say, "Oh no, what am I going to do?" and they go to the lender and they say, "I don't have a I don't know what I'm going to do." And they say, "Well, why didn't you come to me 6 months ago or 8 months ago?" And so now is the time to really look at your portfolio, look at any loans that are coming due and not just in the next 3 or 6 months. Remember, a, a downturn can last a year or 2 or even 3 years. So look at all of those loans that are coming due in the next 24 to 36 months and make sure you have a plan B for each of them. I make loans these days to uh, to people that are doing Burr investments. So they're, they're buying a property, they're borrowing money from me to renovate it, put a tenant in with the plan to then uh, refinance with a larger bank. And so what I've done is I've gone to each of those investors and I basically said, look, your loan is due in up to 12 months, whatever it is, it's typically a 12 month loan. But if in in the time that loan comes due, if there's a problem and you can't get a refinance, I'm going to be willing to extend that loan. I don't want you to just have to stress over that. I don't want you to have to to worry about that. As long as you're making payments, as long as you have a tenant in there that you can continue to make me payments, I'll extend that loan for a year or two or three or five. I don't care. I'm, I'm happy to extend it because um, I don't have anything better to do with the money. I just loan it to somebody else for the same exact purpose. Um, so as long as they're paying, I'm going to extend the loan. There are a lot of lenders out there that are willing to do that. But I know for me, I like to have a heads up. I like to know what my exposure is. I like to know where I'm going to have to put money or what money I'm getting back. So have those conversations with your lenders now. Don't wait until two weeks before the loan due.
0: I think that is so important, having the multiple exit strategies, you know, even not in a downturn, you know, even when the economy is great, if, you know, maybe a flip isn't going to sell, will this property still work as a rental property? So let's talk about strategies that might work in a downturn. So a, a rookie investor just looking to get started, what would you recommend they get into flipping, wholesaling, buy and hold? What strategies would work the best right now?
1: Perfect. Well, let me start with the, the question of what should we be doing today during this pandemic? So okay. during a typical downturn, during a typical recession, I can give you a laundry list of what we should be doing and not doing, and I'll, I'll go into that next. But it's worth pointing out that what we're seeing today, right this minute over the last couple months, is kind of unprecedented. I've written a book on, on economic cycles and what real estate investors should be doing. And I don't have a chapter in that book about how to invest during pandemics (laughs) because nobody's really thought about something like this happening,
0: especially for buy and holds. I mean, as a buy and hold investor, I thought that I was pretty safe during a a downturn, but I have been.
1: I've been saying for a decade now that buy and hold investing is always a safe strategy. Yeah. But, but now I have to kind of put an asterisk next, next, <laughs> right. to, uh, next to every piece of advice I give that this piece of advice may not hold up during a pandemic. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: First thing, if you're looking to invest now, if you're just getting started now, the first thing I would say is don't be impatient. I know a lot of investors that have for the last three or six or 12 months have been ready to do their first deal. They see the market, not necessarily the market dropping, but they see the economy getting bad, and they're thinking, okay, now's my opportunity, and they're ready to rush right out and do a deal today or tomorrow or next week. First thing I would tell them is don't. Slow down. Now is a great opportunity to flush out your business plan, to make sure you know what you want to do, to understand where the market might be headed and what strategies that are going to work and not work. Now's a great time to be studying and reading and learning. Listen to all the old uh, rookie podcasts, listen to, to, to all the old real estate, the Bigger Pockets real estate podcast. Go read the Bigger Pockets books. Now's a great time. Go read the forums, go read the blogs. Now's a great time to be learning and educating yourself and getting prepared. But right now, today, is not a good time for a rookie investor to actually start buying deals. Unless that deal is so good that essentially nothing can go wrong, now is not a great time to be buying investments. And just proof of that is I've bought many hundreds of investments and and my partners between us, we've bought many thousands of investments. And we're buying very, very, very few investments today because there are so many unknowns. Where we are in the economic cycle is again, it's unknown. We've kind, of, we've kind of hit pause on the economy. And when the pandemic ends, or at least when the lockdown ends, something's going to happen. Either we're going to find that we're like in the midst of a recession. We're going to find that we're in the midst of a recovery. Maybe we're going to find we're in the midst of a depression. We don't know. And without knowing where things are going to be in a month or two months when everything opens up, it's impossible to know what the right investing strategies are today. So the very first thing I'm going to say is don't be impatient. Don't run right out and do deals. You're going to, if you're on Facebook, if you're on BiggerPockets, you're going to be reading about all these people that are still doing all these deals. Don't feel the need to keep up with them. Don't feel the need to do a deal just because everybody else is. Now is a great time to sit back, to pay attention, to learn, to, to, to prepare. Now, what strategies typically work during a downturn? First thing I'll say, and I know this is going to disappoint a lot of people, Flipping tends to not be a good strategy during a downturn. So the the entire strategy of flipping relies on buying low and selling high. And when the market's dropping and when values are going down, that selling high piece is pretty tough. Sure, I can buy low today, low relative to what today's resale value is. But if the market's dropping, that might not really be a low number come three months or six months from now. So what I tell people is, don't buy a flip now unless a couple things. One, you get such a great deal that you're confident you can turn around in three or six or 12 weeks and still make money or at least break even. Number two, if you're going to buy a flip right now, make sure you keep the project quick. So it's during a typical recession, at least, it's unlikely that the market's going to drop five or 10 or 20% over a month, but it can drop five or 10 or 20% over six months. So don't do projects that are going to take you six or 12 or 18 months to complete. I would tell people don't start a new construction project right now because we have no idea where the market's going to be in six or 12 or 18 months when that's ready to be put back on the market. But even a flip, unless you're going to keep it to a month or two or even maybe three months turnaround, you're taking a big risk. So if you're going to do a flip right now, one, make sure you're getting a fantastic deal. To make sure that uh, you're keeping that deal really quick. Only take the, the flips that you can get done in the next month or two. Don't buy five flips right now knowing that, okay, I'll get one done in two months and then I'll do the next and the next and the next. By the time you get around to that third or fourth or fifth flip, the market could have crashed and, and you're in a bad position.
4: Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP That's BP like Bigger Pockets Investor for six months of RentReady for only $1. When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store, but then books, so many books, best selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. bookstore so sign up for a one dollar per month trial at shopify.com slash bp rookie all lowercase again go to shopify.com slash bp rookie now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash bp rookie
2: the dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day, with Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes and key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable.
3: Yeah.
0: Before you go on to, to the next strategy, I just want to mention that if anyone wants to learn a little bit more about flipping during a downturn, I think it was episode 381 on the Real Estate Podcast where Tucker uh, started talking about speed is your best friend yeah. doing a flip during a downturn. So if you guys want to go back and listen to that more. So what what's the next strategy you want to talk about? Yeah. So uh, maybe buy and hold or house. Yeah, that?
1: absolutely. So let's talk yeah. about buy and hold. So buy and hold is one of those strategies that works in any market. And again, asterisk, maybe not so great during a pandemic because there are people not paying their mortgage. But typically speaking, a buy and hold deal, a deal that's generating cash flow every month, is gonna be good in every market because even if the value of that property goes down, as long as it's generating cash flow month after month after month, you're going to be in a good position. Typically speaking, during a recession, we might see a small drop-off in market rents in some cities, in some states, and some counties. Uh, but typically speaking, rents are pretty forgiving and rents tend to stay pretty strong even during a downturn. So let's say you buy a property that's, that you, buy, you pay $100,000, it's renting for $1,500 a month. If the market crashed and that $100,000 property dropped to a $20,000 property, you don't care as long as you're still making your $1,500 a month, because eventually that property is going to come back up to a $100,000 property. So the key is that it's generating cash flow to cover whatever your worst case situation is. So what can you do to ensure that that it's generating the right amount of cash flow? A couple of things i like to suggest. Leading into a downturn, make sure that you factor in when you're underwriting the property. And when I say underwriting, I mean analyzing a deal. Make sure you assume that the market's going to drop or the rents are going to drop by about 10%. Typically, like I said, in most markets, they're not. But the worst case scenario, and I always like to look at worst case scenarios, the worst case scenario in most markets is that rents might drop by about 10%. So if you do your analysis and you assume, let's say rents are 1500 today, if you assume 10% less than that, if you assume rents are going to drop to 1350 a month and the numbers still work, then move forward with that deal.
0: Any time, I think you should be conservative when running your numbers, and Absolutely. you know, run run your numbers twice: what they are exactly now, and what's worst case scenario. Absolutely. So,
1: one, I, I always tell people: model your your deals ten percent lower rents than whatever they are today or whatever they mm-hmm. were last month. Next, assume that you're going to have higher vacancy. Now, that may or may not be the case. Just like market rents, vacancy tends to be pretty resilient during a downturn, especially in certain markets and certain types of properties. But always assume that you're going to have higher vacancy. You're going to have um, some units that aren't rented because it's harder to find qualified tenants. Or you might have units that are rented, but people stop paying. So even though technically it's not a vacancy, you may not be making money off those units. So I always like to say, model your your deals with a 10% higher vacancy. So 10% lower rent, 10% higher vacancy. If the deal still works out with a 10% lower rent and a 10% higher vacancy, buy it. Doesn't matter if we're at the top of the market, the bottom of the market. Because again, as long as it's cash flowing, it's probably going to continue to cash flow no matter what the market hands us. And then the final thing I'll say about buy and hold is there are certain types of property that tend to do better during a downturn than other types of property. Did you want to ask a question, Felipe?
2: Yeah, no, I, 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 I was, I was interested because all this knowledge and and everything that you're that you're putting out, I'm like, okay, this is all really good information. So I'm assuming you were a pro with your very first property too, right? With your very first deal, I'm assuming oh, you totally no. hit it. Oh
1: no, <laughs> yeah. we should talk. We should talk yeah. about my first deal after this. Let's talk about that.
2: Yep, after this, let's get there because I know our listeners are going to be dying to hear about your very first deal.
1: Yeah. Okay. So real quick, last thing I'll say about buy and hold though is the type of property you buy is going to impact its performance, is most likely going to impact its performance during a downturn. There are certain types of properties that tend to perform better. And it makes sense if you think about it. When people start losing their jobs and getting their hours cut and getting their wages cut, they're making less money and they're not looking to make extravagant purchases. For that reason we tend to see a lot of people that are renting that A class housing, those really nice apartments or those high-end houses, they tend to decide, okay, I'm going to save my money, I'm going to I'm going to be a, a little bit more frugal, and the people that are renting those really nice A class properties tend to move down into like the B class properties. So they might move from an apartment complex that has like a really nice gym and a pool and a concierge and a Starbucks on site to a decent apartment complex that might have a decent gym and a smaller pool or whatever, they're going to move down in class. And then those people that were living in those B-class properties, a lot of them are going to be frugal as well. They might lose their jobs. They might get their hours cut and they're going to decide, I need to save money. So what they're going to do is they're going to move from that B-class housing down into C-class housing. A lot of people in C-class housing, well, most people aren't going to go homeless. So, C class housing is going to tend to be pretty resilient. In fact, during a recession, C class housing, those kind of that working class blue collar housing, tends to perform very well. Sometimes those values go up and the rents go up. Likewise, with mobile homes, mobile homes tend to kind of be the, the lowest tier where people will settle in when they start losing their jobs or they're trying to be more frugal. So, typically, mobile homes tend to do very well during a downturn. So one of the things I I tend to tell people is if you suspect a recession's coming or if a recession's here and you're looking to buy a safe buy and hold deal, focus on mobile homes, focus on C class properties, focus on maybe B minus class properties, but stay away from those A class and those B plus class properties because those are the ones that are going to tend to perform the the worst during a downturn.
2: Exactly, that's exactly what my uh, most of my portfolio is that way. It's just a very C C plus B minus blue collar hardworking dudes. And they're, you know, they're doing just fine. I've yet to have somebody miss a rent payment. If anything, I've had people pay me a month or two in advance because they want to make sure that they still have their spot at our house. I've also had a whole bunch of people start calling me regarding, you know, rooms to rent or or apartment basements that we have for rent as well, because I think they're just like not wanting to pay that really high rent for the next six months to renew their lease. They're like, well, maybe I'll go to, you know, a two-bedroom basement that I've built out or something like that. And I'll wait this out just to kind of see what happens. So I've had a ton of calls actually going forward from there. Yeah.
0: I've had people say that they wanted to buy a house and we're going to end their lease. And they've actually are going to wait now to purchase property. And they've asked to go month to month on their lease renewals.
1: Yeah, there's definitely opportunity in the lower class housing. To be honest, I've stopped investing in other people's deals at this point Mm -hmm. uh, over the last year, year and a half. But the one deal that I have invested in over the last year and a half has been mobile home parks. I have a, a friend and and I don't want to say his name, although we all know him. Um, <laughs> I was just inv-
0: going to say someone who has <laughs> someone. created all this rage about mobile yeah. home parks. <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: But, but I love, love, love. I mean, it's Brandon Turner and Brandon, I trust yeah. uh, more than anybody. But I just absolutely love that strategy. He picked the perfect strategy at the perfect time. Yeah. Um, the timing too. The timing was absolutely perfect. So, And then there are other things that perform well during a downturn if you're in the commercial space. uh, Self-storage tends to perform pretty well because when people are moving from their A-class to B-class to C-class housing, they're typically also downsizing. But people don't like to throw away stuff, so they put their stuff in storage. So storage tends to do pretty well during a downturn. If you're into like the commercial retail stuff, like grocery stores and and retail strip centers that that have groceries in them tend to do well, medical centers tend to do well. So there are definitely a lot of classes of real estate that are what we refer to as recession resistant, which means they tend to do well or at least much better than other classes of, of real estate during a downturn.
2: Yeah. That's a whole lot of information. That's really good. And personally, I know that I'm going to go back and re-listen to that like last 20 minutes of, and just kind of take more notes, but let's pivot a little bit. And assuming you didn't have all this knowledge when you did your very first deal. So let's dig into that. Let's dig into Jay Scott's very first deal. How did that come out? Was it during a downturn during an upturn? I mean, give us, give us the dirty on it.
1: I I love this because I've done, (laughs) I can't even tell you how many podcasts I've done and I've talked about so many things, and nobody ever asked me about my first deal—at <laughs> least not in any detail. So this is good. This will be the first time I'm talking about this in detail. So
0: this is exclusive. Jay yeah, exclusive, Scott, exclusive Jay Scott. interview.
1: <laughs> yes. So uh, everybody's heard about all the things that that go right with my investing. Well, let's talk about this first deal and all the things I did wrong, and I did a lot of things wrong. So first of all, I give my wife full credit for me doing that first deal. We had looked at maybe 100 houses, and I was terrified to pull the trigger.
0: What were you doing before this? And Good question. What yeah. made you want to jump into real estate real quick?
1: Yeah, so uh, my wife and I were in the tech industry. We were working full-time jobs in California. When we decided to get married, we were both working like 100 hours a week, and it just wasn't sustainable. So when we decided to start a family, we literally just quit our jobs. We moved from California to, uh, to the East Coast. And we said, we're going to figure something else out, but we had no idea what that something else was. It's that we, we mm-hmm. weren't planning to be real estate investors. And while we were trying to figure out what to do, my wife just kind of one day said, let's flip a house. And I thought she was nuts because I am not a handy person. Um, I can barely change a light bulb, but I still wanted her to marry me. So I wasn't going to say no. Um, Attaboy. So I, yeah. So it was spring of 2008, and we started looking at houses. I jumped on bigger pockets for the first time. Wait, did you
0: say spring of 2008? Yeah, did you say
1: spring 2008? 2008. <laughs> not only spring okay. of 2008, spring of 2008 in Atlanta, Georgia, which um, if you look at the data, was one of the hardest hit cities in the country wow. during during the downturn. So it ended up, in retrospect, being pretty good timing. But I'll tell you, if I knew more when I started, I would not have started then and there. Yeah. Um, so it, it worked out, but only because of my uh, my stupidity or or at least my my <laughs> my lack of knowledge and experience. So spring of 2008, we started looking at houses. We found a wholesaler in our area that wanted to show us houses. So I thought, oh, great, somebody's going to teach us how to do this. Somebody I can trust. Yeah, it wasn't quite that. But so we looked at maybe a hundred houses between May of 2018 and July of 2018. I mean, literally. I mean, every day we would go out and look at houses and every day day would say, no, I'd find an excuse not to do it. So July of 2018, and my wife said, we are buying a house. I'm not going to let you put this off any longer. The next house we see, we're buying. <laughs> and I, again, I didn't think she was completely serious. So I said, sure, great. Next house we see, we're going to buy. We saw this house. It was probably one of the uglier houses I've ever seen. But we got done looking at it and my wife said, we're buying it to the wholesaler. And he was thrilled because he had just shown us a hundred houses. I was mortified because I really I mean I wasn't ready to buy. I just wanted to put it off and put it off. but I certainly didn't want to buy this particular house and I'll give my blog site later where you can go kind of actually look at all the pictures and see all the details of this deal. but basically this was this two-story house. there was like thirty steps you had to walk up to get to the front door. It had no garage, so you Literally had to walk up 30 steps to get to the front door. There was bamboo growing in the backyard, completely overgrown. I mean, the house was just really ugly and it was on a really big lot. So that was nice. But it was just, it wasn't a house that I imagined like for my first flip. But my wife said, we're doing it. We we negotiated a little bit with the wholesaler and we came up with our numbers. And so it was a $63,500 purchase price for this house. I walked through to do the rehab estimate and I remember walking through the house, looking around and thinking to myself, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Like what am I supposed to be writing down? What questions am I supposed to be answering? Like how do I know what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done? Um, I remember walking into the bathroom and pointing to the in the shower, the grout lines in the shower were black and I said, I think this house has mold. And, and honestly, I thought that that's like, we're going to have to get like mold testing and mold remi- because right. the, because the grout was black. Um, like <laughs> that's how little I'd paid attention to my own house, which yeah. was probably 10 times more disgusting, um, at least till I met my wife. So I had no idea what I was looking at. I had no idea what questions to ask. Somehow I came up with the number $30,000 for this rehab. No idea how I came up with that number. Um, And then I said, everybody was telling me, well, you have to be conservative. So I said, okay, I'm going to add 10%. So $33,000 was my rehab estimate. Now, in retrospect, here we are 12 years later. I've written a book on estimating rehabs. I know what things cost. That rehab is probably a seventy or eighty thousand dollar rehab. Oh so, my god! So that's just that's just kind of a preview of of where we were. Okay, so yeah. So thirty three thousand dollars was my rehab estimate. I assumed I would hold this property for three months. We were paying cash, so we didn't have many holding costs, which was good. But we had property taxes. We had insurance, all that. So, but I assumed three months, and I figured three months is plenty of time to get this thing renovated and turn around and resold. No problems there. And then we came up with a resale value of I think 130 or 135 thousand dollars. So purchase for 63, put 33 into it, so that's 93. I think I had like uh, 15 in holding costs. That's 108, uh, and resell it for about 130. So that's about 22 thousand dollar profit. I was thrilled with 22 thousand dollar profit. Turns out that. One, we paid too much. So sixty-three-five. In retrospect, we probably should have bought this house for thirty or forty. There were other houses that were very similar that we later learned were selling down the street for like twenty thousand less. So we overpaid mm-hmm. just based on the comps. Two, we started getting our rehab estimates, and I mean, I was getting estimates between sixty and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So I had wow. no idea, <laughs> like, we were going to lose money from day one just because I underestimated the the rehab, and we can talk about that in a second. So. We made a mistake on the purchase. We made a mistake on the rehab, on the resale. So you're
0: saying the next house we see we're buying is not a, a good strategy to start with? <laughs> not necessarily a good
1: strategy, though yeah. I, I, I will get to the good part of that. The good part of that is if we had not purchased this house, it's very possible we never would have bought a house. So yeah, so I do true. give my yeah. wife credit that she made us kind of jump off the cliff. We finally
0: took action. We
1: finally took action and probably yeah. not the best property, but it was better than not taking action. So we made a mistake on the purchase. We made a mistake on the rehab costs. We assumed it would take three months from purchase to sale. I think even in a good market as a first-time investor, even in a great market as a first-time investor, a full rehab, you have to allocate more than three months. Mm -hmm. This was 2008. I mean, we should have allocated nine or 12 months of, of reserves. So we made a mistake on the holding costs and then in retrospect that 130 135 resale price was actually closer to 115 or 120 so we literally made a mistake in every number on this flip all four areas purchase rehab holding and sale we made a mistake now what did we do so we we got into this i ended up finding a contractor who said i can do all of this for 30k no problem whatsoever Single guy who had his own tools, he was like, I can do everything from the roof to the plumbing to the flooring. I was thrilled. He was doing this for $30,000. That
2: just sounds like a bad tattoo waiting to happen there, bud.
1: Oh my <laughs> God. So first lesson for anybody out there that that's getting ready to do their first flip, don't hire somebody that says they're going to do all the work themselves. First, they're not going to have the skills to do it. Nobody is, I mean, you can be a jack of all trades, but you're. it's not... You don't want a jack of all trades to do a retail flip. People are going to see past, or people aren't going to see past those types of problems. So finding somebody that says they're going to do it all first, they're not going to do a good job on all of it. Second of all, they likely are not going to estimate the the cost of the job correctly. Typically, those people are going to go in with rose-colored glasses. Yeah, I can get this done for thirty thousand. Thinking eh, if I get it done for fifty or sixty, that's great. I as the investor, I wasn't expecting that 50 or 60. I was expecting 30 for them it was kind of like, yeah, I'll try and get it done for 30. They're not they're, they're not the type of people that use the software to to create their rehab estimates and they track everything in Excel right. and they know their cost. They're just throwing out a number. And then number three, if you find somebody like that, you're probably going to wait three, six, nine, 12 months for this rehab to get done.
0: especially if they're doing everything themselves,
1: especially if they're doing everything themselves. And then when you start asking them, Hey, I I thought like, this is taking a long time. Can you bring in somebody to help you? Sure. I'll bring in somebody to help me, but then it's going to get really expensive. So first lesson I learned in this business was the jack of all trades contractor is probably not the right kind of contractor for your jobs. So anyway, long story short, this flip talk took us three or four months Should have taken three or four weeks. Um, We actually did get pretty close to budget, though, if I go back and look at our scope of work, I mean, we had an 18-year-old HVAC in there that we didn't replace. The roof was close to 20 years Mm -hmm. old. We didn't replace it. So we took a lot of shortcuts. Um, Again, we made essentially every mistake we could make. We threw the property on on the market at, I think, 125 or 130. Uh, We got one offer that fell through. I got really scared and said, oh, no, we're never going to be able to sell this property because it had been on the market for three weeks. This is 2008 when six months was probably the right amount of time. So I got really scared. I said, we're not going to sell this. Let's just rent it out. So long story short, we got a lease option tenant in there. They stayed for about two years. They destroyed the house. They left in the middle of the night one night. I mean, we only found out that they left when we got a call from the police that there had been a break in at the house. And we realized they had probably been gone for two or three weeks at that point. And so we did a complete second rehab. At this point, we had done like 30 or 40 renovations. So we were ready for it. We did a second rehab. We put it back on the market. We put it on the market at a good price. Uh, we got a quick sale. We ended up making $1,200 on this deal. <laughs> so,
2: What is that f- per hour worked? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I miss- what, was your, what was your hourly? Uh,
1: there, there is zero chance I made minimum wage. So, but I look back and I think to myself, okay, it took three years. I made every mistake I can make. I probably literally made less than minimum wage. I probably made two or three or $4 an hour. Ridiculous amount of stress, uh, ridiculous amount of headaches for this deal. But I look back, I made money. I made $1,200. And so what I tell people is be conservative because that's the only reason that that we made $1,200 was because even though we overpaid i still assumed 63 was a low number even mm-hmm. though we misestimated the the rehab budget i still assumed in my in my calculations that i was going to have a, a decent amount of profit so if i if i ate into that profit for the rehab i'd be okay so every step of the way i miscalculated the numbers uh, but i was conservative still and so the fact that i was conservative allowed me to kind of make every mistake on the book on that first project and still make a small profit
2: so it sounds to me yeah. like you you learned all of the lessons that we real estate investors learn in like in those in that one property. <laughs> sounds like you just learned everything in one property. But what I'm also hearing is you took action. You yeah. you took on a project that was out of your comfort zone. I yep. mean, you we even still made money, proving that real estate's forgiving. You know, it seems like you learned a lot during this process. But more importantly than all of it is, you took action, which has trajectory you to where you're at now.
1: Absolutely, and that's the thing that I tell everybody is that at the end of the day, there's nothing. I'm not telling anybody to to jump in without learning, without researching, without listening, without reading, without talking to other people. But at some point, you're going to know that you're ready and you're going to know that you're just delaying because you're scared. People know that. I've talked to enough investors that when I say to them, do you feel like you don't know enough or do you feel like you're just too terrified to take the next step? 99% of the time, that investor knows the difference. I mean, we always think, I'm not sure that I know enough, but if you really are honest with yourself, you know if you've studied enough that you're kind of ready to take that next step. And so what I say to people is, have that conversation with yourself or with your spouse or with your partner and be completely honest. Am I not buying a deal because I feel like I'm not ready? I don't know enough. Or am I not buying a deal because I'm just scared to take that leap? And if you can be honest with yourself, and most of us can, if the answer is I'm just scared to take the leap, well, you've, you've done the hard part. You've come to that realization that this is what's stopping me and you no longer have that excuse that I haven't learned enough or I'm going to do it next month or next year. You have to accept the fact that because you've you've said to yourself, because you've admitted to yourself that you're just scared, you have to accept the fact that you're either going to do a deal soon or you're never going to do a deal. Here's one of the big secrets that I learn in real estate. And I, I try and tell this to everybody that's kind of in that analysis paralysis phase. I meet a whole lot of people out there that fall into one of two categories. Either one, they've done zero deals. they They read and read and read and study and study and study, and they never actually pull the trigger. That's probably about 90% of the people I meet. Then there's the other 10%. Those are the people that have done two or three or five or 10 or 50 or 100 deals. You know what type of people I never, ever meet? I never meet anybody that's done one deal. Do you guys know anybody that's done one deal and stopped?
0: That is such a good point because mm. I don't, and I the whole time you've been talking about this, being scared, I've been thinking of how people have said, you know, they have fear, they're afraid to do it. But look at you, like, I mean, almost worst case scenario, like a lot of bad things happened in that first deal and look at how far you've come now that you can get over those challenges. And sometimes those are the most successful people that have failed in the beginning and it just helped them, you know, overcome those hurdles and be stronger yeah. in the end.
1: Yeah, people have to realize nobody does one deal. Because once you get that first deal, it gets 100 times easier. The second deal is so much easier than the first, and the third is so much easier than the the second. And after you get that first deal, everything kind of clicks into place. You guys, oh, uh, like I said, when I walked through that first house and I said, I don't know what I'm looking at for the rehab estimate. After doing re- one rehab, the second house I walked through, I was just like, okay, I know what I'm looking for. I remember mm-hmm. on that first house, the flooring was crap. I had to replace the flooring and I had to redo the tile here. And maybe I should check the plumbing and see if that's working. And I knew all the questions to ask. Yeah. So that second deal was so much easier. So what I tell people is if you're terrified, just do that one deal. Because I promise you, if you don't give up and you do that one deal, before you know it, you're going to realize that you've done five or 10 or 500 deals.
0: That is such great advice. And I hope that our, our rookies listening will um, take that advice and take action. And, you know, you do get addicted <laughs> once you get that first deal done. And it it does become easier. So we have a segment. It's called the Rookie Request Line. And um, a rookie calls in and we hope you can answer a question for them. I will try. And if anyone else uh, would like to call in and we'll play your voicemail on the phone or er, on the podcast, you can call one five rookie and leave us a voicemail.
4: Hey guys, my name is Jake Myers. I'm from Redding, California. I'm looking to get into a, uh, another rental property. I was ready to pull the trigger before all this craziness hit the market. So my question is, are you guys waiting to see what happens or are you guys continuing to purchase more real estate? I'm kind of worried that the stimulus package is going to inflate the economy and raise prices. While on the other hand, you know, I'm worried that, uh, this is going to lower prices, so I should wait. So just wondering whether I should wait or pull the trigger. Thanks, guys. Bye.
1: So my answer is to anybody out there that feels like they need to ask that question, should I wait or should I pull the trigger right now? If you're not experienced enough to make that determination on your own, the most likely answer is you should probably wait. Right now, like I said earlier, right now is kind of a, an unprecedented time. Things are a lot different than they've ever been. And there's no shame in saying, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. Because let me tell you something. I I get to talk to some of the the, the the best investors in the world, some of the most experienced investors in the world. And the thing that I've realized is none of us have any idea what's about to happen next. We I, I mean, I've talked to people who think literally in three or six months, we're going to be at an all-time high in the stock market. Real estate prices are going to go up. Then I talk to people who think in three or six months, we're going to be in a depression greater than 1930. So even the best investors in this business can't agree on where things are going. So for anybody out there that's confused and they don't know if now's a good time to buy, you're not alone. I don't know if now's a good time to buy. So what I would tell those people though is it's not a time to curl up in a ball and 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 kind of run away from, from what's going on. Now's not a time to sit in front of the TV and just say, okay, I'll think about real estate again in six months. Now's the time to start reading and studying, create your spreadsheets, uh, go look at 20 deals and run the numbers so you get better at running the numbers. Go figure out how to expand your credit lines. Go figure out how to save cash. Go find partners. This is something I'm telling a lot of people, Uh, During a downturn, if the market gets bad, one of the nice things about a bad market is there's going to be a lot of opportunities. But for new investors, it's hard to take advantage of a lot of opportunities at once. And so if you want the best chance to be able to take advantage of multiple opportunities, build a great team. So go find a partner, go find somebody that's good at acquisitions, go find somebody that's good at raising money, go find somebody that's good at uh, managing uh, renovations or good at estimating renovations, go start putting together a team so that if some great deals start to present themselves in three or six months, if we have some great opportunities, you're going to be ready. So now may not be the time to go out and be spending money actually closing on a deal, but certainly now is a time to be working on your real estate business.
0: That's a great point about building your team too because now is the time to to watch those professionals and see, you know, who is excelling during this time, who has their stuff together, your CPA, you know, lawyer, your realtor, how are, are they handling everything that's going on right now and that could really determine if you want to continue to partner with them or maybe form new partnerships with the people on your team. Absolutely.
2: No, yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm definitely Myself looking at my team and seeing how people are reacting, including my realtor, my CPA, and what they're doing during this time, because that's gonna tell me if I should keep them on board, you know, going forward past this. Are they positive, negative? You know, what's going on? So I'm really looking at my team right now and I think everyone should. Jay, before we get to our uh our some of our funner questions uh going forward, I did want to ask you one more thing. Where do you think the market will be through the rest of 2020?
1: Yeah. So I am happy to give my I'm not even gonna call it an opinion. Um, I will call it a guess. I I already said earlier that anybody that tells you that they know where the market's headed or how good or bad it's going to be is just making stuff up. So let me start with what I'm about to say. I'm just making stuff up. This is my guess based on data that I've seen um, and where I think that data could lead. This is my guess based on trends that I've seen, people I've talked to. But here's my guess. I think at some point in the next month or so, hopefully... Um, we're going to for the most part get out of this lockdown. And once we get out of this lockdown, I kind of use the uh, the metaphor. we're kind of like we've run off a cliff and we've dropped down to the bottom of the cliff and at the bottom of the cliff there's a trampoline and that thing that's fallen off the cliff is the economy. And so the economy goes all the way down like as bad as it can get. it hits a trampoline at the bottom. and when things open back up, that trampoline kind of pushes the the economy back up now, Anybody that knows physics knows that when you bounce on a trampoline, if you don't add energy, you're never going to get back to the same point that you started at. So you'll never get back to the top of the cliff. The question is, how high back is That, that is the economy going to bounce? Is it going to get close to the top of that cliff? Is it going to get only about halfway? Where are we going to settle in once that, that initial bounce after the lockdown kind of takes hold? My take is that we're going to settle in in a place that looks like a typical recession. So we're going to have decent unemployment. There are a whole lot of people that are not going to get their jobs back after this. Unfortunately, um, a lot of businesses are going to go out of business. Um, a lot of businesses are going to slow down. Uh, there are going to be fewer people traveling. The tourism industry is is probably going to take a hit. People might be be going to like the beach, their their local beach, but people aren't going to spend necessarily ten thousand dollars to go to Disney World after this when they don't know what's happening with the economy. So I think. That we're just gonna see a general slowdown in the economy over the next three to six months. We're gonna see what's basically a typical recession. And then in six months, we could go one of two ways. I think things could either start to get better and we could come out of that recession the way we typically come out of a recession, or we could see what ends up being a very, very, very bad downturn. Now, there are three things that I think will play a part into which way we go. So, like I said next three to six months, kind of typical recession. And then from there, it branches off, either better or worse. And the three things that I think will ultimately determine whether it gets better or worse are, number one, there were a lot of things in the economy that were not looking great leading into this pandemic. The economy was pretty strong. Stock market was great. Unemployment numbers were great. Everybody knows that. Um, But there were certain other numbers that were less strong. We were cutting interest rates, and manufacturing was kind of in a slump and retail wasn't doing great and wages weren't really keeping up with inflation so a bunch of economic numbers that were just less than stellar so it's very possible that this pandemic kind of exacerbates all of those things that weren't looking great before so if the whole interest rate situation ends up being really bad leading into the the, the this pandemic interest rates were in a bad place, that could kind of cause a whole bunch of different industries like manufacturing and retail and and tourism. It could cause those industries to kind of snowball and it could cause everything to kind of just go out of control. So basically, all those economic indicators that weren't great leading into this could get a whole lot worse. So that's number one. Number two, the government is spending literally trillions of dollars. It could be five or even $10 trillion before this is over to kind of keep the economy going. That's a necessary thing. I mean, nobody likes having to spend 5 trillion dollars to print money, but it's in this case I think it's it's an example of a time when it's absolutely necessary to do. The question is, what is that going to break? How is spending 5 trillion dollars or 3 trillion or 10 trillion over a few months, what does that break in the economy? We've already seen this whole thing in oil. So for anybody that hasn't been paying attention, basically oil prices for crude oil have gone negative something that's never happened before, nobody could have predicted. Who
0: would have thought that would have happened? Uh, Exactly.
1: It was one of those, I refer to it as an unintended consequence. The mortgage industry, we've had a lot of issues in the mortgage servicing industry because of the forbearances and because people are being told they don't have to pay their mortgage or pay their rent. So that's an unintended consequence. What are these other unintended consequences besides oil, besides the mortgage industry that this whole all the stimulus breaks? is there something really, really big that happens that we break that just destroys the whole economy? We don't know. So that's number two. And then the number three question that that we don't know the answer to, so we don't know if things are going to get better or worse, is what's going to happen with future lockdowns? So we could come out of this 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 lockdown for this pandemic next month and everything gets better. We find a vaccine or we find a good treatment, or we find out that 90% of the people have already gotten it. So we are we mostly through it. And that's a good scenario. The bad scenario is what happens if we don't get a vaccine, if in six months we hit the fall and uh, the virus comes back really hard and we have to go into a second lockdown or a third lockdown or a fourth lockdown? That can derail the economy again. So at the end of the day, w- the risks are all the things that were kind of not great in the economy leading into this pandemic, those things can break. All the stimulus that the government's releasing during the pandemic, that could break something. And future lockdowns, that could really derail the economy again. If any of those three things happens and kind of cascades and dominoes, I think we could see a major, 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 major downturn. If none of those three things happens, if we get really lucky, then I think people are right. What we might see is we see a typical recession. And then in six to 12 to 18 months, everything's back on track again.
0: Thank you for sharing that with us, Jay. I think it's always interesting, at least for myself and I I think our listeners too, is hearing, you know, someone's perspective and your guess on what could be the future, because I think that's what everyone is wondering now is what is going to happen and You know, hopefully, it will help them make a a decision whether they should continue to invest, keep investing. But really, um, everyone needs to make that decision for themselves. And I'm really glad that you had brought that point up too. And we did um, mention it a little bit earlier, but you did write a book about this for anyone who wants to read it that, you know, wants to find out some more information about understanding the economy and how these cycles work. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So um, economics has always been a a passion of mine and real estate has always been a passion of mine. And I realized uh, about a year and a half ago that there were no good books out there that talked about economic cycles and the economy and how it relates to real estate and us as investors. Uh, So I wrote a book called uh, Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing. And it is basically all about how the economy works, all about how economic cycles work, and then all about the whole second half of the book. Is how us as real estate investors, we should be modifying our strategies and our tactics to ensure that, that during any part of the economic cycle, whether it's up or down or flat, that we're maximizing our profits and we're minimizing our risks. And so that was released about a year ago through Bigger Pockets. Again, recession-proof real estate investing. And then just this week, they released the the paperback version. So I'm very excited about that. And
0: that has an updated intro in it. Correct? It has an updated yeah.
1: intro, and actually, it has uh, uh, several sections have been updated. I wrote the paperback version just at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, beginning of March. Yeah. Um, so I updated a few sections just related to some of the new information that we have.
0: So, if you want to purchase that, you can go to biggerpockets.com/recession. And if you buy it from there, you, there's also a lot of freebies too. You have some guides that you're you're giving away with that.
1: Yep, there are a whole bunch yeah. of bonuses, and there is a couple Q and A sessions, uh, Q and A uh, uh, conferences that I did uh, live with some some investors, and and I think they're releasing a couple other bonuses. I don't know exactly what they are. Yeah. Um but there are a couple other bonuses there too. But what I would tell people is, if if anybody is, is gets the book and is reading it, what I would suggest is over the next over the next three to six months, assume that we are in the recession phase of of the cycle, mm-hmm. um, and th- those are the strategies that you should probably be considering most most seriously at this point.
0: Good, good. Well, yeah. So if you guys want to check that out, biggerpockets.com forward slash recession. And um, now we have some fun uh, questions uh, to ask you. Let's do it. Felipe, you want to take the first one? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So what's a quote that sums up your approach to real estate? You've been doing this for quite some time. You've been gone through a couple of recessions and ups and downturns and hell, you wrote the book on it, right? What's one line or quote that you just live by uh, when it comes to this now?
1: I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett's famous quote of uh, rule one for investing, don't lose money. Rule two, see rule one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Not not the exact words, but I'm a big fan. I'm a very conservative investor. Um, and I think that's actually uh, one of the reasons my w- why my wife and I uh, do so well working together is that she tends to be a lot less conservative, so she kind of pushes me out of my comfort zone. But I credit a lot of my success to the fact that I'm, I'm very meticulous about the numbers. I'm very conservative. I don't take a lot of risks. And I, I'd probably have a few billion dollars more if, uh, if, I, if I were <laughs> less conservative, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to take fewer- It helps fewer- you sleep
0: at night. Yeah, I, I like to I yeah. like to
1: sleep well at <laughs> night, yes.
0: Okay, so my question isn't really on our list that um, we choose from, but I am curious as to what are you doing for your kids, if anything, to involve them in your real estate business and are you trying to build a legacy for them?
1: So, well, starting with the second question, no on the legacy. I think a lot of people like to push their kids into what they do. I would love my kids to be entrepreneurs. I would love my kids to be investors, but I'm also realistic enough to know that if I don't push them, they'll probably find other passions. So if what I create ends up being a legacy, if, uh, if they end up, taking over any of our businesses, whether it's our real estate business or any of our other businesses, that would be awesome. But I like to kind of build on the assumption that they won't. So that way I won't be subliminally or subconsciously kind of pushing them to do that. I, I want them to kind of follow their own path. That said, I find it very important that our kids kind of understand money and understand investing, understand the way capital flows through markets. I guess that's a... A, a complex way of saying um, we just involve them in our investments constantly. So our mm-hmm. kids went to their first closing. Our, our oldest went to his first closing when he was six days old. Oh yeah. <laughs> and awesome. gotta start him young. <laughs> he, Yeah, absolutely. He is on every job site with us. I mean, we don't Mm -hmm. go to the job sites anymore, but uh, for for many years, they were on every job site with us. We don't do a deal, whether it's a business deal or a real estate deal or any other deal that we won't sit down as a family and talk through the deal. It's something my wife and I like to talk through all of our deals, Mm -hmm. um, but we like to involve the kids. So mm-hmm. we'll actually walk them through. This is how we do the numbers and let them ask questions. And you'd be surprised. I mean, even at nine and 10 years old, they often ask insightful questions that get us to think.
0: Oh, I'm um, sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then um, we we try and do things kind of the, the formal way. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a sec. Uh, every time we do something. So my kids wanted to start a lemonade stand last year. And instead of just doing the, here's some lemonade, here's a, here's a table, go sell some lemonade. My wife and I kind of did the more formal thing of, okay, well, let's talk about how much it's going to cost to start a lemonade stand. So what are the things we need? What are the ingredients? What are the cups? What are the, um, what are the What's the signage? What are the tables? And where are we going to get that stuff? And for the stuff we have to buy, how much is that going to cost? And you guys don't have any money, so how are you going to pay for that? Well, how about if mom and dad loan you the money? And then we go out together, and you can pick the kind of lemonade you want to buy, and you can pick the kind of cups you want to buy, and we can talk through how we want to price that. And you guys make all the decisions, whether they're good decisions or bad decisions. We'll we'll figure that out later. But you make all the decisions, and we'll loan you the money. And then they did their lemonade stand. And at the end of the day, we counted all the money. And I said, well, we loaned you this much money, so you need to give us that much money back. Plus interest. Now let's see how much... Yeah. Well, we didn't, we hadn't started yet, Um, but we did that separately. So they, they returned the money and we actually create a P and L an income statement. So it was like, here's our, our gross revenue. Here's our cost of goods. So Mm -hmm. here's the amount we spent on cups and lemonade. Here was our expenses. Here was the amount of money we had to pay mom and dad back. And then here was our profit at the bottom. Um, And so from a, from a very early age, they realized that just because they make 20 or $30 at the lemonade stand, Doesn't really mean they make $20 or $30. And they were really disappointed that first time to find, oh, we have to pay back the $20 that we borrowed from mom and dad. So, but at the end of the day, they made some money. And the same day they did their first lemonade stand, I think they had like $35 or something. I said to them, I said, how would you like to invest that money? And they said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, this is the way it works. If you want to give me that $35, what I will do is I will give you $3 for every month that you let me borrow that money. I want, you don't have anything to do with the $35. You're just going to put it in the bank. But if you give it to me to use for whatever I want to use, I'm going to give you $3 every month or it was $3.50 because I did 10%. I'll give you $3.50 every month. And then in six months, I'll give you the $35 back. And so they're like, oh, I don't know. Okay, sure. We'll do it. Um, I, I sort of pushed them to do it, and I said, "But if we're going to do this, we have to make it formal." So I made them write up a promissory note. Mm-hmm. So I, Chase, and Cade uh, are loaning Mom and Dad thirty-five dollars at ten percent interest for ten for six months. Blah 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 blah, and I said, "Okay." Every month I need to give you the money. If I don't give you the money, you get interest or you get a penalty. Yeah. And so every month they get really excited because now they're up to like $600. Yeah. So they've taken their birthday money. They've taken their <laughs> lemonade money and they keep giving me this money yeah. and I'm, I'm stuck paying 10%. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And I think they've realized that they're taking advantage, but they, they still do it. And right, so every, yeah. every month, basically that's, that's more than they'd get from an allowance. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we basically treat money the same way it's treated in the real world. We don't just give them money like an allowance because in the real mm-hmm. world, you're not just giving money. If they want to help us with a, with a project... They get paid to uh, to solve problems. They don't get yeah. paid hourly. So you come up with a good idea that generates money. Well, you get a commission off that. Yeah, so that's a just, great
0: idea. Yeah, just and like the with real world. Them giving you their money they, that's saving that money too instead of them spending it.
1: Exactly. So yeah. yeah. So we just we treat our kids like we would business partners.
2: That's really good. I love that you're still incorporating them in the business, but not really forcing them to do anything that's out of what they would like to do. And then they're making money. They're kind of seeing how it works with one or two dollars here and there. I can't wait to see their faces when you start showing them what taxes is going to look like, though. So that'll be a, that'll <laughs> yeah, be a follow up we, one. We've
1: talked a little bit about taxes. <laughs> they haven't they haven't incurred that penalty just yet. That,
2: that'll have. be a great one to see when you have to pay them back all that interest and thirty percent on. In the
0: hallways of this house, you have <laughs> right, to pay. right, right. If and, you want to use the common area, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Got to pay a tax.
2: That's hilarious. So, what is uh, I guess for my question, what next would be, and, and this is going to be kind of away from real estate a little bit. What's a bucket list item that you still want to cross off? It sounds like you've done a great in real estate. You've done a lot. You're now in mobile home deals. You're here, you're there. But what's something that like you would want to cross off your personal bucket list?
1: It's so funny. I don't have any one or two things.
2: Jay Scott's done it all.
1: No, no, I <laughs> haven't done it all, but it's it's. I certainly haven't. There's so many things... I want to do, but it's kind of like if they don't happen, so my wife and I would love to spend a couple of years living abroad. Nice. So we've talked about moving to Italy, like uh, we we'd love to live in Italy for a couple of years. So I guess that's kind of big on our bucket list. Do we do it with the kids or we wait till the kids are out of the house and then we do it? I don't know. Um, I'd say that's probably our, our our biggest thing. We lived in California Northern California for a long time, love Northern California, so we'd love to retire eventually to Northern California. So, one country, but uh those are kind of the the two big things and and anything else we we don't we're we, I don't wanna say we're we're simple people <laughs> like we like things, but yeah, it's for us just spending time together as a family and and being able to do like our little vacations I mean, we take weekend trips all the time, and for us, like that's just the best thing in the world you know so.
2: let, can, if I can add something to that, jay, and this is gonna kind of a little bit off the course here. I've noticed so much happiness in people that take weekend trips. We've started to do that. Something about taking, instead of like, oh, I'm going to take one vacation at the end of the year. I've heard a lot of people that are just really happy and they just take weekend trips all the
1: time. I find those big trips, like the 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 thought of like going to Disney World or something, Ugh. that's just uh, horrific exhausting. to me. It's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. Like My kids, they're just as happy. I mean, they're nine and 10 years old, but they're just as happy. Like if we like went to California, like they'd be just as happy driving down the street and getting a hotel down the street. Because yeah. for them, it's like it's the staying in a hotel, getting to do the pool, going out to dinner like that to them. They don't care if we're in California or if we're in Europe or if we're like uh, in the next town. They're happy over. to be with yeah. mom and dad. Um, and, man. and so f- yeah. and, and so for us, I mean, it's like I, we live in Florida. We live basically uh, a couple miles from the beach. So for us, like every day is a vacation. So no complaints and, and we're nice happy. Nice place
0: to quarantine. Yeah, it is. It has <laughs> been. And Good. So thank you so much for, uh, you know, providing so much valuable information to everyone and getting that exclusive on your first deal. We are, feel privileged. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. This was so much fun. Thanks, yeah. guys.
0: Yeah. Can you tell everyone um, where they can find out more information about you and possibly reach out to you?
1: Absolutely. So uh, my wife, Carol, and I, first and foremost, are the co-hosts of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. So for anybody out there that wants to learn more about uh, business and being a business owner, and remember, if you are a real estate investor, you are a business owner. Mm -hmm. And so we talk all about how to be a better business owner, whether it's real estate or any other business you could have. So check out the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast on Bigger Pockets. I am Jay Scott. On Facebook, I'm Jay Scott Investor. And anybody can reach me via email anytime. Uh, my email address is the letter J at jscott.com.
0: And you need to promote your Instagram because we're big Instagram people here oh, too. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> so I,
1: I'm up to like 3,000 on Instagram. And
0: good. It's, it's Let's go. A
1: long time.
0: Um, <laughs> good. My You're going Insta- to catch up to Felipe. <laughs> yes.
1: Um, I'm trying to catch up to Brandon Turner. He's at like 120,000 now. Yeah. My Instagram is jscott underscore one, two, three, flip. And actually, I guess I'll mention this. If you go to my website, uh, I haven't updated it in years, but uh, I I started running a website in 2008 called 123flip.com. And there I detail in gory detail, like right down to the penny, our first 50 deals. So wow. if you're a house flipper or you want to be a house flipper and you just want to learn about every mistake my wife and I have made in this business, most of them were made during those first 50 deals. So go check it out.
0: Yeah, we'll put um, links to that too in the, in the show notes so awesome. everyone can check it out and um, a link to your book and the definitely the podcast, because I've listened to a ton of your guys' business podcasts and you're so right. As a real estate investor, you are a business owner and a lot of the systems that your guests talk about are are very relatable to Absolutely. a real estate investor. Hey, well, thank you so much. I am Ashley at Welcome Rentals, and he's Felipe Mejia Rei. And um, don't forget to join our Facebook group, Real Estate Rookie. And do you guys have a, a business Facebook group? We are working
1: on a business Facebook group, so um, awesome. Well, so we'll post about soon. it in
0: yeah, in the Real Estate Rookie one. Um, we'll post it in there, so everyone can join that. Awesome. Hey, thank you. Thanks, guys.